For some of you, it's your first time. For others, it is not. But for today, I would like to welcome you all to Epic Realms. Friends and enemies, heroes and villains, welcome to Epic Realms. My guest today is an author of urban fantasy, sci-fi, space opera, weird west, and most know of her from her Silver Series and the Amsterdam Institute Series. Welcome, Rhiannon Held, a.k.a. RZ Held. Thank you. See, I, I pay attention to my stuff, kind of, <laughs> sort of, maybe, at least this time. <laughs> How are you doing and welcome? Thank you for coming. Good. Thank you. So before we start today... Because we mentioned those things, but one thing I didn't mention, and something that I, I'm just going to start right off the bat, is uh, you're also an archaeologist. I am a professional archaeologist. I, I think my Twitter says something about um, two sexy yet misunderstood professions that don't really make you money, yeah. but I will admit that archaeology does pay my rent. Well, that's what so. matters, right? <laughs> And yours is, uh, you focus more on like, in, in my, now correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like environmental yeah, so um, it's an environmental compliance firm. Okay. Um, so it's a company that, that, that I work for um, that um, does when there's going to be development, we check like a bunch of stuff to make sure that like there's not the only um, breeding pair of endangered frogs on the site or there's okay. not a super important wetland or, you know, things like that. Um, and archaeology is part of that. So we make sure no frogs, no super important wetlands, also no... Um, cultural resources is what it's called. Um, and so uh, we aren't looking for archaeology. We were checking to make sure that it's not there so it won't get damaged by okay. development going forward. Okay. Have there been times where you've run across stuff like, uh, you know, stuff that people usually see as archaeology, like, oh, this is a, a you know, a holy, a holy site that people didn't know about or, um, you know, like you find, find, like you said, the endangered species. Have you run across <laughs> that a lot or? Um, not as much as people think because there's sort of this, that you get this sort of narrative like in fiction a lot of times, like archaeology doesn't want development to happen. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, we are living in cities just as much as anybody. So like the example I like to use because <laughs> you really need them if you need a new sewage treatment plant. Um, <laughs> me, as much as anybody living in some city, really wants a new sewage treatment plant as opposed to the existing one, like, overflowing into the river. Like, right. that ain't good. So we do want it to go forward when they're going to build a new one on this parcel of land. Um, but we don't want it to um, damage anything. And so there's something called data recovery, which is where we would do the excavation to get something out of the ground if you can't put, you know, our hypothetical sewage treatment plant anywhere else. Um, and so the stuff that we find, um, we have had some 
super cool sites of various kinds. Um, and some of them we can be like, hey, you have a road, you could send it this way, you could send it that way, send it that way, because there's something here. Um, or there's ones where we have been like, okay, let's excavate it um, and get it out of there. Um, and then as far as like um, the, the words we would use are um, traditional cultural places, okay. which is sort of the spiritually important places. Um, and the thing about those is that people know where they are. You just have to ask them um, because uh, we work really closely with um, the tribes um, and the tribal archaeologists and all um, people like that. Um, and so part of bigger projects is saying to the tribes who that was their traditional homeland, like what's there is something important there. Um, what can you tell us? Um, Cause we want to be respectful and not, you know, hurt anything that's there. Right. Right. Do you find that that life that you've had, the, that experiences that you've had have been useful for writing some of your books? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, it's, it's interesting, like over time talking about how archaeology has gone into my writing as well, um, because uh, in, in the beginning, it was subtle and I know it's there and people wouldn't necessarily know it's there. Um, I'll name drop one of my um, books. It's, a, it's actually a collection. It's got a couple of novellas yeah. that has an archaeologist character, which is Ladies' Children. Um, so even if you haven't read the Silver series, you can read Ladies' Children um, because it's got the archaeology character and archaeology is actually done on screen. So it's like archaeology of the werewolves. Okay. Um, so that, but that, that was later. And so in the initial stages of the Silver series, I'm like, well, it really um, plays into like the werewolves. They're a species rather than um, humans who were turned by a bite or something. Right. So being a, a species, they have their own history, their own religion, their own sort of traditions and oral history and et cetera. Um, and so that was all sort of like bubbling below the surface, but it yeah. wasn't, you know, there in a huge way. Um, but then in the space opera series, my current one that I'm working on, um, the Amsterdam Institute series, um, I'm like, I'm just going to put it in your face. Because <laughs> that one, the novellas, novellas one and two are one protagonist, three and four are another protagonist, and then five or six. Six hasn't come out yet, or later this year. Those are a third protagonist, and they're in different eras. So what that lets me do is say, okay, here's the world in the first era, and then jump couple hundred years here's a new character going about her business whatever but things are are different slightly okay. like you know new new planetary empires have sort of risen and they have a little bit of cultural continuity but things have changed a little bit and like the language is changing they use different slang um and so that in a big way um is using sort of my archaeology and looking at kind of like cultures over time they do have continuity but they also sort of change so okay so we're talking about the silver series give us an overall kind of scope of kind of how that came to be that series oh. in particular um so uh i attended um as a sort of aspiring writer when I was learning my craft, I attended the Odyssey workshop, okay. um, which is a bit like Clarion in that it's a residential six-week workshop. They've oh. actually changed format now. Um, so it's a uh, it's online because of the pandemic, but then they took it to, sort of purposely online um, going forward now. Um, 
but uh, so at that time I was honing my craft through short stories, which I, I still write now. Um, but uh, at that workshop, a lot of other people were doing novels and I was sort of like, well, maybe I should be doing novels. I don't know. Yeah. Um, and Jean Cavellos, who runs the workshop was like, don't write a novel until you can not write until you can't keep yourself from writing a novel. Um, and I was like, hmm. So a couple of years later, because of some personal life stuff that, you know, I won't, you know, kind of yeah, yeah. Um, uh, talk about just because the, the people involved, I don't, you know, I yeah. don't bear them any ill will. But um, I was like, you know what? I can't keep myself from writing a novel. <laughs> I, I want something to just like consume me and fill my time. Um, and that was Silver, um, the very first novel. It wasn't called that at the time because, of course, your title changes. <laughs> Who knows yeah. how many times? But right. um, and then uh, from there, the with the revision process, and you know, so I worked on it for many years. Um, but then I eventually sold it. Um, so and then I sold the first three um, to the to Tor, the traditional publisher, and then Tor decided not to pick up four. Okay. Um, so uh, four and five, which finish out the main series, I self-published them. And Ladies Children sort of um, is a collection of not only the short fiction, but the novellas in it sort of like jump ahead a little bit and sort of wrap up the larger world rather okay. than the sort of like close events of the, the first five. And is Mistaken Captives also in that same world? Yeah. So M Mistaken Captives is collected in Ladies Children. Um, oh, okay. So uh, there's, there's two novellas, um, and one of them was released on its own to sort of, because it, uh, parallels the events of, um, book five, okay. uh, or book four, one of the two, <laughs> this is terrible. I'm turning into one of those authors, like, which book did that happen in? <laughs> anyway, it well, they'll have to read them all and find out, right? Right. Exactly. Right. It parallels the events of one of those two. And so I wanted it to be sort of there as kind of the DVD extra. Um, and then um, I that's got the archaeologist character. I returned to that character okay. um, in Ladies Children for a second novella. Yeah, I was very curious because looking at them, um, those two have very similar covers and they really yes. stood out to me. I'm like, they got to be part of the same series. And I was like, but it doesn't say they're part of the same. I don't. Okay, Goodreads, <laughs> come on now. Hook, hook me up here. Give me some information. So I don't yeah. look like an idiot when I'm asking questions, <laughs> but I, they just, the, those, those particular covers just jumped out at me. And I was like, those are really cool. I mean, all yeah, the covers got it. are pretty awesome. Great but. cover artist. Uh, so tell us about the main character from that and kind of how, what the, what the story of that is, if you would, because the main sure. characters, like the, the two main characters from what I understand are werewolves, right? And yes. one of them can't necessarily shift. Do I have that yes. right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> See me, people that are listening are like, what did he just do? He just did that big, that fist, like, yes, I got it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the, the Silver series, it follows um, Silver herself, that's the name she chose, um, and then Andrew Dare, um, descended from the Dares of the Roanoke colony, which was half werewolves. So okay. here, here I am, I'm getting to the, the world building history of the, yeah. the werewolves. Um, and uh, Silver was injected um, with silver nitrate. Um, so not only can't she shift anymore, um, her arm where, where the arm where it was injected is, um, 
dead. She can't really use it. She gets a little sort of mobility back, but it's never going to be like a hundred percent. Yeah. Um, and also it uh, caused uh, brain damage. Um, so Silver herself sees kind of visions and how she thinks about it, which is kind of one of the, the central contrasts of the series is that um, Andrew Dare um, is an atheist. Um, and so he's looking for very grounded scientific explanations for everything that's happening. I mean, other than I, I, I have people sometimes say, like, um, how can he not believe in the gods? Because he's a werewolf and that's magic. And um, and I'm like, well, but I mean, it's the kind of magic that you take for granted. Like there, there's a certain magic in the inherent, I think, in the natural world in terms of like we can. Um, make copies of ourselves and they grow up and then they're a different consciousness and what is consciousness like consciousness yeah. kind of magic right um so uh andrew's an atheist and then um silver is um she views her visions as visions of the religious realm so their their goddess is called the lady um and she's paired with death in sort of the yin yang duality kind of thing okay um, and so Silver um, speaks with death, but she feels that the silver um, nitrate in her blood has kept her from being able to um, see or talk to the goddess anymore. But she sees her visions as kind of the spiritual realm okay. that she sort of exists a little bit in it. Um, so the, the books were fun to write, um, tough, <laughs> very tough in some ways, but um, because Silver's point of view she doesn't see our world um, in, in the same way. And so then you need to lean on when you're writing the other point of view characters who can see that like, okay, now they are in, in a house or whatever, as opposed to she's seeing a, an open field with a spring in the center or th something like that. Okay. Um, so it, it, was, it was fun to play with um, perspectives that are that different yeah. um, from each other. So. so my next question is going to be the million dollar question. Why, do you, why choose werewolves as opposed to any other supernatural type of being out there? Um, oh, let's see. Cast my mind back. Um, so <laughs> I was writing this um, 2009 or so. So that was urban fantasy was huge and yeah. I was really enjoying urban fantasy. Okay. Um, I did some LARPing in world of darkness. Okay. Um, yeah. And so that was a little bit on my mind. Um, and uh, the first time that I LARPed world of darkness was when I went to undergrad. And so world of darkness was my first introduction to the idea of sort of um, taking the supernatural and then fitting it within the modern world, but um, sort of uh, in in the werewolf game, there's the Glasswalker clan, which is the werewolves who are like really citified, and yeah. you know they're always in in skyscrapers or whatever. Um, and that was a the first time. I won't say like they invented the idea. It was the first time I encountered that idea, right? And it really resonated with me the contrast of the sort of wild and supernatural, but being in a city, living in a city and sort of turning that wild supernatural magic to sort of urban ends. Yeah. 
Um, and I really enjoyed that contrast. And um, I specifically went with werewolves um, over say like vampires or something because I felt like um, they would be really good to do as a species. Um, and because I really specifically wanted this feeling that these are people who um, have a history, have a religion, have all sort of that sort of going, the tradition going into them, um, as opposed to a vampire who has their history and their people and their tradition, and then they're turned. And right. now as whatever age they're turned at, hopefully an adult, now as an adult, they are thrust into the vampire culture. And I'm like, I want werewolf culture that is completely from the word go, all werewolf, no human. Okay. Well, that makes sense. And I can see how that would encompass some of that archaeology too, background where you kind of see your understanding cultures and kind of how they work yeah. as well. So, all right. So your other pretty well-known series, which you have a new book that just came out not long ago, uh, is called the Amsterdam series, uh, Amsterdam Insti Institute series. Yeah. Uh, I knew that when I put down my notes, I have it in one place, but in the other place, I missed the Institute. <laughs> I was like, nope, nope, nope. I know that's not what it is. Uh, tell us a little bit about this one. Um, so that one, um, I, it was my sort of first foray into space opera. And then I discovered that I super love space opera. So that's yeah. why I sort of expanded into a whole series. Um, uh, I wanted to look at sort of the idea of um, technology um, changing you, but you're still you, but what you, what, who is that you anymore? Right. Um, so the technology changes with what I was talking about, the different sort of eras in this mm -hmm. universe. Um, but the central theme is that it's changing something about the, the body or the mind. Um, and the other thing is that um, it happens without the protagonist's consent. Oh. Um, so in the first one, she's infected with these nanites that are made to make super soldiers. So they go ahead and like make her into a super soldier. So now she's a super soldier of the people who were invading her planet. Um, and she's like, what do I even Genevieve is the name of the protagonist. Like Genevieve's like, what, how, what do I do with that? Right. Um, and so the adventure begins because she's left home because her people can't sort of live with that, that she's like be, basically been made into a soldier for the enemy. Um, and so she goes and she sort of tries to find um, a way to kind of sabotage other soldiers. Um, and along the way, like she ends up having kind of a different goal, but that's the one she starts out with is the, the sabotage. Um, and kind of looking at coming to terms with um, this uh, technology, she didn't want it, um, but it's there now, what's she gonna do with it? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and is she the same character in all the books? As you said that it, you know, it's, over a course of time, does she stay consistent in all of the books or is that just the newest book? Um, so Genevieve is the first two. So okay. um, her name, um, and I played with the, the sort of naming tradition a little bit just to make it a bit different. Um, her name is Amsterdam Genevieve. Um, and so the Amsterdam Institute is what she founds. Okay. Um, so then that carries forward onto um, 
novellas three and four, which is uh, Proxiana um, is another person from the, the planet of Idol is the name of their planet. Um, and she works at the Amsterdam Institute. Okay. Um, and then Pure Motives is um, book five that just came out. And that's a, a new protagonist yet again, um, Franklin Chloe. And uh, she ends up eventually at the Amsterdam Institute. She's not a native of Idol like the other two are. Um, so it's sort of Genevieve gets the ball rolling. All right. Um, and then the others sort of like touch on the um, research institute that she founded um, in their, their own specific ways. Okay. What is it the cause? So you mentioned that, you know, World of Darkness kind of helped inspire the other series. Was there anything that inspired your love for space operas or this type of uh, genre? Um, well, so urban fantasy didn't sort of fit anymore. Um, any writers who are listening may sort of recognize the feeling of sort of like you're feeling a little bit boxed in and the tropes feel cliched as opposed to tools to use. They feel like they're confining you. And um, so I was looking for something new other than urban fantasy. Okay. Um, and um, the thing about my world building is I am not somebody who researches for fun. I research at my day job. Yeah. So I'm not <laughs> looking to go and do more research just for fun. And the other thing is that um, my academic training has been very strongly that if you don't know, you don't make it up. Um, because when it comes to archaeology, there's a lot we don't know. And it's very important to say what we do know and then stop. Right. And maybe sort of make some extrapolations or hypotheses or sort of talk about, oh, well, in somewhere else, this was happening. So maybe here, but you definitely say, but we don't know, we only know this, that we have direct evidence for. Um, and that's great for science and it is not great for fiction writing. Right. <laughs> because um, if you're uh, researching um, a, a archaeological site and so they have these huts and so you have evidence of like where the, the corner posts are in the ground and you're like, we don't know what the roof was made of yeah. because like it has decayed, it's gone, we don't know. And we can only say like tribes in the air later use this or that or whatever. But um, and so I would come to sort of writing, say, historical fiction, which everybody expects that an archaeologist is going to write. Right. Um, and I would come to it and I'd be like, OK, here's their hut. What's on the roof? And somebody who like is enjoys doing fiction that way would say, oh, well, you know, I'll just think of something that makes sense. Like there, there's lots of like you know, pine boughs in the area, let's just say like pine boughs. Um, and I would be like stuck. I'd be like, I can't, I can't, no, I don't. It, what's on the roof? <laughs> um, so historical fiction was not for me. Right. Um, and so I detoured first into Weird West, which also has an aspect of that. But yeah. um, my Weird West that I actually write um, in my short fiction. So if you look up RZ Held, um, a lot of my short stories are going to be in a similarish kind of world, um, is far future. And so um, at that point, it's all sort of, nobody knows what far future might be like. And I just say, okay, so our tech level has sort of like 
um, dropped a little bit uh, because of you know events of the the this world you know the okay. um, not gone backward or become uncivilized or anything like that the tech level is just lower uh, because that's what fits for this world okay um, and that meant that I didn't have to worry because I was just like well you know nobody can say any different doesn't matter about evidence this is what the roofs are and on their houses. Right. And then space opera is like the next step. It's like super far future with a lot of tech. Um, and it's expected that you don't have to sort of like have research for it's because certain types of science fiction, sort of hard science fiction, you're like, you need to like base it on, uh, you know, gravitational principles or right. you know, whatever. Um, but space opera, there's much more a sense of like, so yeah, the like ray guns, they go pew, pew, pew. And like the spaceships, <laughs> they like zoom around. Right. And there's like anti-gravity and like artificial gravity. And like, you're, you're all good. Like, they move in atmosphere, just like out of atmosphere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, and I'm like, this is for me. <laughs> um, and so having the world set up where I'm like, everybody knows that these aren't based on real scientific principles and everybody's, or, or they're not a hundred percent based on current science. There's some sort of extrapolation lets me then base it on um, cultural principles and not sweat the gravity um, and just get to the fun parts. Right. <laughs> what is your favorite part about writing short stories and, and uh, novellas as opposed to full-size novels? Cause you seem to have a lot of short stories out there. Yes. Um, the fun part of short stories is that um, people will sort of um, paint the rest of the world just from a little view. And so you can focus on making a really great little view and you don't have to do build out like 100% of the world. I mean, that's, that's equally true in um, a novella or novel because you can't build out everything or it gets right. really really long and really really boring right um but there the the feeling of sort of like taking my flashlight out and shining it on like one corner um and just playing with what's visible in that corner and what does that sort of indicate about the rest of the world but but we're not looking at the rest of the world we're just looking at this little corner um i really love that um, because it, you can suggest all kinds of stuff, but then you can just really focus in on the character emotion and you don't have to worry about, um, I like to say the, the, uh, tyranny of the hypothetical pedants, which is this idea that like, if you don't get every, um, sort of detail, right. In something that you're writing, the pedants are going to come after you. <laughs> What's um, their pitchforks? <laughs> right. Um, and short fiction like it's a little bit more sort of relaxing to be like you know what no like everybody knows that you're only seeing one corner and so they're not going to worry too much about what what's everywhere else so let's focus on the character emotion and the themes because i'm um what draws me into a story is very much more the character above all is there something that you prefer like some people prefer writing dialogue some people prefer writing action or sequence or describing imagery sure. uh, where do you kind of feel like you fall as far as what you enjoy writing when it comes to those um my dialogue skills came first 
Um, so those are like, okay, we're good. Let's develop the other stuff. So it, it's fun, but I, I enjoy other things too. Cause there's a, a, you know, with any skill, there's a sort of like the challenging parts. Right. So the, the dialogue is the easy part for me. Um, and then other stuff is the challenging part, which can be just as fun. Sometimes, sometimes you want to challenge yourself a little. Um, and, um, I forget the name for it, but, um, Oh, so the, the full version, which I don't have, um, is called, I think, aphantasia, which is where you can't um, make a picture of anything in your mind. Like yep. you think only in, in words and sounds. Yep. So I don't have that, but I have um, not as detailed uh, ability to make pictures as some people. I like to yeah. say that rather than a painter's palette and a canvas, I have Photoshop. Okay. In that I can composite things I have already seen. Right. And so if you are trying to describe to me with words like an 18-eyed, bug-eyed, alien centipede, I mean, I'm working from like centipede and like eyes, and that's right. real tough. Right, right. <laughs> but if you're describing to me like a tabby cat, like I've seen many, many tabby cats, so that's much easier for me. Yeah. And so um, description is tough for me. Because when I'm reading, I need about the level of description of um, sort of a, a rehearsal of a play where all the characters are there, all the dialogue is there. Um, maybe you have a couple of like flats up for the, the scenery and you have the key props. Like if somebody answering a phone, like there's a phone on stage, but the costumes aren't there, the, the hair's not done. The rest of the like furniture that they don't interact with on the stage, that's not there. Um, and so my tendency when I first started out was to write that way, where I'm like, well, I just told you she's on the phone. What you want me to describe like the room? I don't care about the room. I right. don't care about the room. Right. Um, and so uh, that took more building up of my skill to say, um, yes. Uh, people are going to be wondering about the room because they paint a, a sort of 360 degree picture right. for all their senses of what's going on. So let's give them some details. But at the same time, um, you can go too far yeah. because you definitely don't want to be sort of like, okay, there's a chair and then history, there's a, this and it's got this and that. And then over here, there's that furniture. Like you go around the whole room, that's a whole novel in and of itself right. getting too detailed. Um, so that, that was a learning experience for me was to, um, and, and I think that, um, it could be one of those situations where, um, because I don't visualize very well, um, I'm hopefully working to write so that stellar visualizers have something, but then also visualizers like me who aren't visualizing as much, they also have something as well. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping that I'm sort of finding a middle ground so that both of those types of readers can find something in my work. Right. And I think if I was just a stellar visualizer, I would just be sort of giving all the visualization that somebody like me would need. And, you know, um, that that might not be as good um, for people who can't visualize to the same level. Right. So. And I am, there's, there's uh, iconic, maybe not iconic, but there's a thing that I, so side note, <laughs> Here, I'm just stammering over my words. My wife also can't visualize things. So very oftentimes I'll explain 
here's a, you know, it's a blah, 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 blah. And she'll be like, looking at me like she's lost. And I'm like, grab a piece of paper so I can draw it out. So that she's like, oh, okay. Because it's very much that same thing. And uh, there's a there's a scale where it shows it's like somebody describes an apple, which one are you? And the first thing is just a a like a beautiful apple with full color and 3D textures. And then there's like the like it's colored and you can kind of see like where the shine of the light is and the thing and the kind of the background. And then the next one, it's almost black and white. And then the mm -hmm. next one, it's like just gray, like almost pixelated. And then the last one, it's like nothing. I don't see anything. And it says <laughs> people are on the, this is the scale of how people visualize when you tell sell someone, can you picture an apple? Uh, or they go, I, I know what one looks like, but I can't close my eyes and see one there. So that's mm -hmm. a really amazing thing to be able to keep that in mind when you're writing your books to keep those people in mind. However, if you have a hard time with that, how do you write a space opera where you have futuristic stuff? And if you haven't seen it, how do you describe it? <laughs> Photoshop skills. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> as it were. Um, so uh, it's all, it's all about the creative compositing. Okay. Um, and sort of taking a place you have seen um, and then um, taking like a build. Well, so for instance, my, my background on the podcast, you won't be able to see this, but my background is a um, picture of uh, the Columbia Gorge. There's a, I, it's a um, historical tunnel was built in, I think 1917. Okay. Um, so I figured it was, it was pertinent. Um, but then it's also got the sort of um, scree slopes and the basalt layers of the rock where they cut in. Um, and the vegetation and all that sort of stuff. Um, and uh, that's a real sort of geological place that I have a photograph of and I can describe that to people to evoke it. Um, but if I put a spaceship in it, um, then it's a, it's a different feel. Okay. Um, and so working with that spaceship, I'm like, okay, um, I've uh, don't want to make it like, you know, say the space shuttle or something like that, but I've seen plenty of sort of um, people's art of different kinds of spaceships and, okay. um, you know, things like that to sort of uh, take, I don't know, a cool fancy car and say, maybe it's got similar kind of like shiny chrome and, and smooth layers, or maybe it's much more sort of like a Humvee where it's like really blocky. Right. got kind of like external pipes and stuff on it um and just wor working from things i have seen that capture a similar sort of like you know because a, a custom car um is trying to maybe not be fast but look fast right and look shiny and and all sort of capture like yeah this is luxury um and you know some beat up jeep that's been through the mud is it's functional and it's for a purpose and what purpose is it for yeah. and so looking at okay does my spaceship do i want it to be luxurious and a, a rich person's toy do i want it to be functional like that they're going around through asteroid fields in it yeah um and then using different sort of fit things as the basis so you can kind of get the the aesthetic of kind of how yeah. it feels to the people that makes sense yeah. uh jumping subjects here there is a couple of things that you've been participated in. Uh, there's a magazine called Beneath the Ceaseless Skies magazine. Can you tell us a little bit about that? 
Yeah, so um, Beneath Ceaseless Skies was actually started by an Aussie graduate. Okay. Um, for, he was in a year earlier than mine, um, uh, Scott Andrews. Um, and it does, um, it's an e-zine and it does secondary world fantasy. Um, and I can't recommend it highly enough, not just because <laughs> Scott has published several of my stories, but all the stories on there. Right. Um, I feel like he has a really great sense of um, finding fantasy stories that are very uh, lyrical, um, but it's not about just, you know, sort of being pretentious and look at look at how I can use words, but they're they're lyrical in service of the deep emotional truths of the characters. Okay. Um, and so um, I was really honored to be able to um, get have my work accepted into that. Um, because I I love that style of fantasy myself. Okay. Um, and as you could probably guess, because I'm not reading descriptions just to read descriptions, I'm reading descriptions because I want them to evoke emotions in me. Right. And I feel like um, Beneath Ceaseless Skies uh, is really good at picking like those type of stories among, you know, all the all the magazines sort of are really great at um, uh but various ones are great at that, but Beneath Ceaseless Guys is just one that happened to to speak to me. So, how do they go about? Did you, did you go to them? Did they come to you? So it's um, standard uh, sort of <laughs> slush procedures. Mm -hmm. um, as for many of the um, speculative fiction markets, um, in terms of uh, you don't need to be agented or anything, and then they're open at various times of the year. Um, I think Beneath, Beneath Ceaseless Skies is open nearly all the year. Um, some uh, magazines like, I don't know, Strange Horizons only has like a you know couple sort of open periods. Um, and then you submit um, and hope they accept you. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> it's it's the, the sort of, um, you know, I've had, uh, compared to some of my friends, I haven't had a ton of short stories published, but um, I've had a few. And um, my tracking uh, spreadsheet for uh, rejections as well as acceptances is super, super long. And not only like rejections on other stories, but rejections on the stories that eventually sold, like those very stories, um, plenty, plenty of rejections on those too. So it's a pretty typical kind of short story. Um, when trying to publish short stories, like it, you wanna write a bunch, submit a bunch, um, and then eventually sort of work on, uh, as you work on honing your craft, um, if you're lucky, then you'll happen to um, fit the vision that particular editors have for their magazines or anthologies, and then you could start getting into them. But it's, and it's not just about um, talent either. It's about uh, fitting an editor's vision. Right. What's good for one editor might not be for another. Yeah, because somebody might want a, you know, a certain aesthetic, like you were talking about, of a sci-fi, and somebody else be like, we already got five of those, give me something yeah. else. Yeah. So that totally, totally makes sense. But a lot of, like a lot of the people that we have on, they don't necessarily do a ton of short stories, and or they do, and they're just ah, like, sure. they're filled in. And so it's nice to see your point of view on that, because you do have that. You do have a lot of these things, some of your anthologies. And I, literally, you look on Goodreads, and there's like, you look under your name and there's just like this list of <laughs> anthologies. It's like, this is super cool to get to work 
you know, with all these anthologies, how is it to work with all those uh, and, and the other people that are in those anthologies? Um, it's, it's very interesting um, because I feel like, you know, it depends on the, the editor and the publisher what the process is going to be like. And so um, I've had uh, really, really great experiences um, with all of the editors. I'll say that right off mm-hmm. the bat. Um, but there was, there's a, a story I'll t- or an anecdote I'll tell um, where I won't name the publisher because it's a small press and I don't know if right. they're even still running, but um, they uh, did um, copy edits, but they didn't send them back to me. Oh. Um, so I was, fortunately, I saw the story at the page proof stage, which is where it's all like laid out. Yeah. Um, and so they did give it back to me at that point, And I found this really like super clunker of a sentence. Um, and I'm like, I can't believe I would have written that because right. I assumed it was from something that I had, you know, that a typo that had got yeah. caught, but, um, their copy editor had just happened to sort of value um, rigid adherence to some particular comma rule over sentence flow. Um, And so the story had become full of all these clunky sentences. And I went through and I like fixed all of them um, because I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't care about your comma rule. I want the sentence to to flow. Um, And the most frustrating part about that, because that's a pretty typical, like you hope it doesn't happen, but a lot of authors have sort of encountered that, which yeah. is that like, you don't get stuff to go over it when you should. Um, the frustrating part was that I was describing a character um, and she's a, a apple dryad or something like that. Um, and so I was saying she was, she was very rounded. Okay. Like she's got sort of a blush on her cheeks and so she rounded hips and sort of rounded belly and rounded breasts and, and sort of round, right? Um, and so it came back to me and it said she was rounded in all the right places. Wow. And I was like, absolutely not. Wow. Like say, if, if you want to like back it up, so I say bust instead of breast, like fine. Um, but absolutely not rounded in all the right places because that's sexualizing. Yeah. And she's a dryad and the way I had written it, like she doesn't have sex. Like <laughs> she, she makes seeds. It was part of the magic and that didn't even happen in the story. And so like, no, don't be sexualizing my non-sexual dryad. Right. Um, and so I was so happy that I was able to catch that. And I was like, okay, fine. So I just was like, she was very rounded her hips were rounded and her cheeks were rounded or something like that. And I'm like, well, we'll go to that. It's fine. I don't, I don't care about the original version. Just don't, don't do that to my poor character. Yeah. Well, and that's a, that's a point of view thing too. Like that's obviously yeah. some, that's sorry. I'm, <laughs> I'm angry on your behalf. <laughs> so we talked earlier about you were doing LARPing. Uh, we talked about that, you're on a show called Dungeon Scrawlers. When did the role playing start? Oh, well, so it started late. I, I feel like compared to many writers who have stories about how they were, you know, they knew they wanted to be a writer when they were four years old or whatever. And I was like, I admitted that I wanted to be a writer when I was like 16. Like I wrote some stuff in school like you do. 
Um, but I, I think I always was a writer, but I didn't admit it till I was 16 or so. Um, and um, as uh, a teen in high school, I went to a math and science magnet school. Um, and so there was the focus on that. And so we got a lot of geeks there. Um, but for whatever reason, we weren't particularly D&D geeks. Okay. Um, and I don't know if it was because that was pre-D&D, um, you know, being quite as big as it is now. I think it was back in third ed, maybe. Okay. Um, and, or, or what it was, but um, I didn't play D&D until I got to undergrad in college. Um, and so when I got to college, that was sort of a big enough pool of various sort of role-playing things that like I got into the LARP and LARP wasn't quite right, but then I did D&D &D and doing this and doing that. And so that's when I first started um, getting into the role-playing in a big way. And then in um, graduate school, um, I got into uh, MUD gaming. Um, and <laughs> I always want to say Moo gaming because it's M-U uh, asterisk to you know <laughs> encompass all of it but you say moo gaming and people sort of like look at you when so, you're saying it verbally yeah <laughs> so i'll say mud because i'm sure one of the versions of that i was a mud as opposed to a moisture muck or whatever right um and that was very formative for me as well um i think jim butcher um was in mud gaming at some point and he ended up i think um stopping because he needed the writing time yeah um and uh, i ended up stopping because um the one i was on at the time sort of had dissolved a little bit because people you know the the um gms are going off to different things or whatever um and i just didn't sort of pick it back up again and now now i think that it would cut into my writing time right but, but i have dungeon scrollers instead so i can still keep scrollers. on my gaming and for those that don't know dungeon scrollers is a show on Twitch uh, where they role play and for all of your entertainment. Uh, you guys have, people who are listening to the show have, we've had Eric to be on twice now. And uh, we talked about that quite a bit and we're going to eventually have everybody from the show on this show. Eventually. Okay. We're getting there. We're getting there. <laughs> so you're, you're here now. And so it's all about you. Tell us about your character. <laughs> you want to tell us about your character. Everybody oh, wants to oh, talk about I their character. I do, I do. Um, I hadn't played D&D for quite a while, um, like for a good long time, as far as like I'd done a pickup game or two. But um, so I got into to Dungeon Scrawlers and I made this character. I'm like, okay, yeah, this is the character that um, I really, really, really wanted to make. It was in me. Um, so I play a half-elf uh, sorcerer um, named Artemisia and she's the, um, whatever it's called, dragon lineage. Or So she's got the, the scales and at level 14 she gets wings we're level 13 you're getting there <laughs> Get almost so close um uh, viewers of the show will laugh because i've started playing up her like thing about wings um but uh i really enjoy um sorcerer is actually my favorite class because i do tend to go more spellcaster than fighter and if I'm going to go spellcaster, I usually want to go sorcerer because um, I enjoy the idea of having a character whose magic is inherent as opposed to a character who um, just says the white words and sort of waves their hand around in the yeah. right way um, to be able to tap into magic. Have you gotten a lot of experience in GMing? Uh, so I playing? did. 
<laughs> mostly playing. I did um, DM once and that's available on YouTube if people want to look it up. Um, I had a ton of fun because I DM'd an archaeology episode. Nice. Um, so we went to Mithranor, um, which if people know the Forgotten Realms um, is a sort of old elven city in ruins. Mm -hmm. um, and so there was an archaeological dig um, in Mithranor. And of course, there were other things going on for our characters. It wasn't just right. that they went and like got to view the archaeological dig. But I was like, when you view the archaeological dig before the like magic breaks out, and you're running around or whatever, that is going to be the most correct archaeological dig. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds exciting, though, because you, you get to use your knowledge and background in role playing. And that's a great, a great tip to give people to use what you know, yes. in GMing. Yes. So do you look forward to doing more GMing or are you like, nope, I'm just going to stay being a player? <laughs> well, so the next thing would be, because I'm, I'm one of these charity streams, um, I might see if there's interest from like guest players to go to the, the archaeological dig or something like that. Um, but the next step would be, um, I'm not super comfortable with combat. Okay. Um, the, the DMing I did with the archaeology episode, there was plenty of sort of like... Uh, problem solving and investigation and ability checks to sort of like, you know, jump or do whatever you needed to do. Um, but I didn't run any monsters. Okay. Um, so I know that that's a skill that um, I would want to sort of uh, <laughs> put training wheels on um, and get comfortable with uh, before I was DMing regularly. Um, and I know it's a matter of just sort of like picking a monster and getting your feet wet. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> and doing it, it's trepidation. Yeah, we have a we exactly. have a show uh, for those that are listening to the podcast as well. We have another show that's just just on the stream and it goes on YouTube where we, it's a Dungeon Masters Workshop, and so we get people on. We had Eric on and we had Ed Greenwood and a handful of others, and we just did our last one uh, this weekend where it's literally tips to help people be better GMs and people come in and ask questions. So feel free to come and send me yeah. send me questions you have. And I will make them part of the shows because. Uh, <laughs> how do I monster? How do I monster? <laughs> do I really need to do combat or can I skip the whole dang thing yeah, and exactly. do archaeology? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Is there uh, any events that you have coming up? Um, so I'm doing uh, two in-person conventions this year. Okay. Um, and one of them has passed. So the, the, the other one, your, your one chance. Um, is uh, MISCON in Missoula, Montana. Um, and if you're anywhere in that area, um, I highly recommend it, not just, but because it is the most friendly little um, speculative fiction community that you will ever find. Um, it is just so much fun. Um, I'm really looking forward to that. So that is um, Memorial Day weekend. May 27th through 30th, I believe. Yes, yeah. Um, and um, then, uh, yeah. So, <laughs> that's what, my one what, do, what do they do? You just have will you just have a booth there? Will you be signing autographs? All of the above? Will you be working with other people? So it's um, the style of uh, fan convention where um, there's a lot of panels for the okay. um, pros who are attending. Um, so I'll be talking on panels, and panels can be anything of like let's discuss themes and you know, this kind of book or how aspiring writers, how do you do dialogue well, or, you know, runs the whole gamut. Um, and then um, I suggested, I don't know if there will be room space. I suggested a couple sort of like workshops for like me doing a little bit more of like 
it, I take 45 minutes and I talk about some strategies for, you know, writing this or writing that. Right. Um, and uh, I'm sure there'll be an autograph session. I'll probably do a reading. So a, a little bit of everything, one of those okay. kind of conventions. Awesome. And again, that's May 27th through 30th. Of course, you can also find her on Dungeon Scrawlers and uh, there's Twitter and YouTube and on Twitch. So Dungeon Scrawlers can be found at all of those locations with all of your favorite authors. Also your website, rhiannonheld.com yes. on Twitter at rhiannonheld. Yes. Correct. Awesome. All right, friends and enemies, May 16th. We will be joined by New York Times bestselling author and award-winning game designer Matt Forbeck. Known for his tie-in fiction such as Halo, D&D, and Warhammer, the Marvel Encyclopedia, as well as his work on Deadlands, and the new Marvel RPG that's coming out. So he's going to be joining us May 16th. May 30th, Rhiannon's fellow dungeon scrawler Aaron Evans is going to be joining us today. Happy birthday to Aaron today. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we sh she will be joining us. She's known for her Brimstone Angel Saga and Empire of Exiles, as well as being a content creator for the Idol Champions video game. So that's going to be May 30th. So don't forget, Rhiannon's new book, Pure Motives, is now available. So check it out. Uh, and if you like the show, rate and review it. It helps us get eyes on us and get eyes on our guests. And that's what's most important. So make sure to do that, everyone. So for Rhiannon Held, I am Nick. And thank you all for listening to Epic Realms. Well, there you are. I hope you enjoyed yourselves. And I do hope that you come back and join us again for Epic Realms. <laughs> <laughs>